Bumpers. Life doesn't give you bumpers. No. Talk to me. Samantha, how was your week? Uh, I don't know. Dad, it was kind of tough. Billy and Ellen broke up, and Ellen's kind of mad at me because she saw me talking to Billy in the cafeteria. And you remember that sculpture I was working on? Well, it was a unicorn, and the horn broke off, so now it's a zebra, okay? But I still think I'm gonna get an egg, right? Mason, uh, how was your week? Well, Dad, you know, it's kind of tough. Joe, he's kind of a jerk. Actually, he stole some cigarettes from his mom. He wanted me to smoke them. But I said no, because I knew what a hard time you had quitting smoking, Dad. How about that? Is that so hard? Dad, these questions are kind of hard to answer. What is so hard to answer about what sculpture are you making? It's abstract. OK, OK, that's good. See, that's, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know you were even interested in abstract art. I'm not. They make us do it. But, Dad, I mean, why is it all on us, though? You know, what about you? How was your week? You know, who do you hang out with? Do you have a girlfriend? What have you been up to? Let's see your point. A week later, we don't know why Thomas wasn't there the first time, uh, but a week later, uh, Thomas comes back and joins the other disciples. They say, hey, the Lord's alive. We saw him. I won't believe it until I put my finger into his side and I'm going to see those nail prints in his hand. About that time, here comes Jesus standing right next to him. Okay? And he turns to Thomas. Don't you know Thomas felt some shame? He turns to Thomas and says, Thomas, here, stick your finger in my side. Look at these nail prints. It's me. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God, I believe. And Jesus said, well, that's good. But blessed are those who can believe without seeing. It's a lot easier when you can see and feel and touch but like us, we haven't seen him in the flesh. We haven't felt him in the flesh, but we have experienced him in the spirit, at least I have, and I hope you all have too. This pond's right up here. Ooh, it's low. Yeah. You know, my dad could take you fishing next time you're here if you want. Nice. Hey, baby. What's going on? You know, I think we're just gonna hang out here for a minute. Yeah, you want me to stay with you? No, it's okay. You sure? Yeah, thanks. Mason, why are you such a stick in the mud? What are you even talking about? Hey, you guys don't mind coming back here on the 20th, do you, for Cooper's baptism? No, it's fine. Sam, I appreciate it. It means a lot to Annie and her folks, you know? Were we baptized? <laughs> I wasn't the least bit concerned with the state of your soul. Uh, we can do it now, though, if you want. I, I, I don't you want and Cooper it. together? Yeah. <laughs> Dunk your heads? You're not becoming one of those god people, are you, Dad? Mm, what's that supposed to mean, hmm? I can hear you. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Hope. Uh, my name is Scott Raines, one of the pastors here. So glad you're joining us for worship right now. 
Uh, That was a series of clips from a movie called Boyhood. It was written and directed by uh, Richard Linklater, and it came out in 2015, nominated for uh, six Oscars, including uh, the Academy Award for Best Picture. I'm guessing most of you would not like the movie. It's kind of slow. It's almost three hours long. It just kind of drags on. But I think it's a fascinating film. They did something unique with this film. Uh, they, They filmed it over the course of 12 years. So at the beginning of the project, they hired the actors. Uh, it's a, it follows a family, a divorced couple, uh, a mom and a dad, and the son and the daughter. And then over, you know, every two or three years, they'd get the cast back together and they'd film a new section. And so you literally get to watch uh, this family grow over the course of the three-hour movie as they grow over the course of the 12 hours that it, it took them uh, to film it. It's called Boyhood. It could have been called Childhood. Uh, it could have been called Motherhood. It could have been called Fatherhood. Uh, but it's called Boyhood because primarily it tells the story of this family through the lens of this uh, boy in the movie, his name is Mason, and Mason is a careful observer of life. He's constantly watching as his parents enter these new realities of blended families. He's just observing all of that. Uh, He's observing his sister and the choices that she makes. He observes his own life, the decisions that that he makes. He observes the men who come in and out of his uh, mom's life over the course of those uh, 12 years. That uh, scene that we just watched, uh, the dad is now remarried, and the a new wife is a person of faith. And so Mason finds himself at church for the first time in his life, and you can just kind of see the way he is taking it all in, just kind of observe, observing this. What am I supposed to be uh, thinking about all of this? As we get started in worship today, I want us to take a look at a, a little bit of Psalm 33. I'd encourage you to read the whole chapter sometime today, uh, Psalm 33. In the middle of it, it says this, the Lord looks down from heaven and sees the whole human race. From his throne he observes all who live on the earth. He made their hearts so he understands everything they do. Uh, Some of you maybe know Pastor Merv Thompson. Uh, Merv was a pastor in Minnesota for 35 years before joining the staff at Hope uh, back in 2003. And so Merv has a lot of experience, and he's kind of a mentor to the other pastors at Hope. We lovingly refer to Merv as Yoda. And one of the first lessons that Merv taught me when I uh, joined the staff at Hope, he said, Scott, part of your job, part of your role as a pastor is to be an observer. Just be a careful observer. What's going on in society? What's going on in culture? What's going on in uh, the city where your church is? And then in your role as a preacher, you interpret your observations and share that with the congregation. Here's the Lord. He's doing this observing work. He sees everything, and the Lord understands everything that everybody is doing. I wish I understood everything that I'm observing these days, but I got to tell you, I don't. These last couple of years, it's been the most challenging time in my pastoral ministry to interpret everything that I'm observing. But I think Merv is right. It's a big part of the role of a pastor to do that. So I'm going to make an attempt to interpret for you all that I've been observing about us lately. And sometimes people come up to me after the service and say, oh, Pastor Scott, that's one of your best messages. That's probably a top five message that I've heard from you. I'm not planning on anybody saying that to me after uh, this message, so just be prepared. Are you, are you ready for this? Okay. Um, this kind of gets us to our Bible reading for today from Second uh, Chronicles chapter 7. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 7 It's the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem. 
the temple was King David's idea, but he did not build it. His son Solomon is the one who ended up building the temple. And part of the dedication of the temple is Solomon is praying for God's presence to fill the temple. And it actually happens in a really cool way. You should read 2 Chronicles chapter 7. How does the Lord's presence fill uh, the temple? Uh, on, on the screen, the image you see here, this is the western wall of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. You're not looking at anything that King Solomon made. The temple that Solomon built it was destroyed by the Babylonians. And then after that, the Israelites uh, rebuilt the temple. So uh, the second temple was then destroyed by the Romans. So you're seeing the remains of the second temple. This is the western wall of the second temple that was built in Jerusalem. It's one of the holiest places in all the Holy Land. It's sometimes referred to as the Wailing Wall. This is where people go to cry out to God in prayer. And so as, as Solomon is dedicating the temple, uh, it's all about prayer. And then shortly after that, um, the Lord appears to Solomon and talks to Solomon about some things that might happen in the future. Things that are not good, things that the people will not like. And uh, the Lord says to Solomon, when these bad things are happening, here's how I hope you and the people respond. We see it in verse 14, we'll put it up on the screen, and let's read this out loud together. Read it with me. Then, if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, and will forgive their sins, and restore their land. I think that's kind of an interesting response from God. Here, here's Solomon doing this really good thing, right? He's building a temple, a house of worship, a house of prayer, a place where people can serve the Lord their God. And God's response is somewhat mixed. His presence fills that temple, but it's almost like at some level God is kind of shrugging his shoulders and saying, it's nice that you'd build me this temple and all, but a day is coming when you're going to stop worshiping me. You're going to turn your backs on me. You're going to stop praying to me, and instead, you're going to follow after wicked ways. Do you ever wonder what the wicked ways are that the people of Israel started to go after? If you keep reading in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, uh, the, the writer makes it pretty clear what the wicked ways are. Shortly after Solomon, there is a civil war in Israel, and now there is a divided kingdom. The northern kingdom uh, takes the name Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. They have different capital cities. Uh, they build a new temple in Samaria in the, in the northern kingdom. And part of the reason why the book of Chronicles is called Chronicles, it chronicles the history of the southern kingdom of Judah through the reigns of the kings of Judah. And the chronicler helps us out quite a bit. Uh, the chronicler gives us a, a grade for each of the kings. It's not like A, B, C, D, F. It's pass, fail. So here's the summary, the grade uh, for King Asa in 2 Chronicles 14. Asa did what was pleasing and good in the sight of the Lord his God. What are the good and pleasing things that Asa does? He removed the foreign altars and the pagan shrines. He smashed the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah poles. So Asa gets a passing grade. He is one of the few kings of Judah who gets a passing grade. 
Most of them fail. Most of them are like uh, Manasseh, an example of a king who fails. Manasseh we read about in 2 Chronicles 33, and we'll put his description up on the screen if we go to the next slide. There it is. Uh, Manasseh did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He rebuilt the pagan shrines his father Hezekiah had broken down. He constructed altars for the images of Baal and set up Asherah poles. Some of the kings get a passing grade. Some of the kings get a failing grade. The passing grade comes to those who tear down idols, destroy idols, smash idols. A failing grade comes to those who build and construct idols. And hopefully you noticed one of the details that was the same in both uh, the account of Asa's uh, reign and the account of Manasseh's reign is there's something called an Asherah pole. I'm going to keep, try to keep this part of the sermon PG rated. I might slip into PG-13 territory, but I'm going to try to keep it PG. Uh, Asherah is a fertility goddess that the people worshipped, a false god. How, how did people know what they knew back in the Old Testament, uh, back in the ancient world? We have all kinds of information and knowledge that uh, is available to us to help us know what we know. A lot of that information and knowledge was not available to people in the Old Testament, in the ancient world. How did they know what they knew? They knew from observing, carefully observing the world. How does the world work? This is what will inform us. This is what will give us knowledge. So it's a very agrarian world, a subsistence culture, a world where if it does not rain, we do not have food and people die. And so they observed if we take a seed and bury it in the ground and uh, put a hole and cover that hole with dirt and the seed is in that, and then it rains and the rain penetrates the ground, in a little bit of time there's going to be new life. They observed this is how it works for plant life, season after season, generation after generation. And they also began to observe there's a similar reality when it comes to animal life, when it comes to human life, seeds and penetration and new life. If you're not tracking with me, send me an email and I will send you some Bible verses that will make it explicitly clear what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to keep it PG rated, but I want you to know the, the idol worship of the false god Asherah, the, the kind of stuff that happened around an Asherah pole was an X-rated reenactment of this observation. So God says to Solomon, a day is going to come when people are going to be doing wicked things like the kind of worship that happens around an Asherah pole. And when that happens, you need to turn from your wicked ways. You need to seek my face. You need to pray. My guess is we would have pretty close to 100% agreement in this room that the kind of activity I tried to describe without describing uh, connected to the worship of this false god Asherah, that's wicked behavior. That's wicked behavior. What I am observing in our world today is wickedness connected to idolatry that involves you and me. And let me try to explain. Have you noticed when the Bible talks about sinners, the Bible has at least three categories of types of people the Bible talks about when it talks about sinners? We've got sinners, just you know, garden variety sinners, wicked people, and evil people. And this shows up in a lot of different places in Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament. Here's a place in the New Testament that kind of points to this idea. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. John writes, If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. So this is one of the many places in the Bible 
that the biblical writers are trying to help us understand we are all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. So turn to somebody close to you and just say, hey, welcome to the sinner section. It's nice to see you joining us in the sinner section this weekend. Every seat in this worship center is reserved for sinners, and it's reserved for saints. It's a real interesting kind of paradox. How does this all play out? But uh, John says, if we claim we have no sin, we're fooling ourselves, and the truth is not living in us. The apostle Paul says, we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. The prophet Isaiah says, we all like sheep have gone astray. We, we see this idea cover to cover in scriptures. And then John goes on, and I want us to read verse 9 together. Again, it's on the screen. Read this out loud with me. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. So again, you see this language is kind of interesting. Sinners, wicked people, evil people, you see sins, you see wickedness in that one verse. What's the difference between a sinner and a wicked person? John gives us a clue. John basically says, uh, sinners confess their sins. Wicked people claim they have no sin. Let me say that again. Sinners confess their sins. Wicked people claim they have no sin. I don't know about you. I have never met anyone in my life who claims to be without sin. I'm 100% perfect. I've never done anything wrong. I've never met anyone who would say that. Everyone that I meet says, I'm not perfect. I wonder if maybe what John is getting at here, so think about myself. All of the sin in my life would be 100% of Scott's sin. All of the sin in your life would be 100% of your sin. And maybe we confess 75% of our sin, 85% of our sin. Maybe some of us are... A students when it comes to confession. We, we confess over 90% of our sin. That still leaves a percentage of our sin that we don't confess. Uh, things that we do, attitudes that we have, uh, words that we speak that are harmful, that hurt people, that contribute to what's wrong in this world, but we claim that it's okay. We claim that there's nothing wrong with what we do or, or what we say. And if you're hurt by it somehow, that's on you. That's a you problem. Part of what I want you to understand, most of us, when we see the word wicked, wickedness, we think we're talking about like extreme examples of really naughty things. Extreme examples of people who do just awful, atrocious things in the world. That's not how the Bible defines wickedness. The Bible defines wickedness, not the magnitude of the harm that you have caused or the hurt that you have inflicted on someone. The Bible defines wickedness as simply a refusal to admit you have sinned, to confess your sin, to own what you have done, to take responsibility for what you have done. Think of the middle scene of those series of clips that we were watching from the movie Boyhood. Uh, the father is trying to get his adolescent kids to engage in conversation. Why don't you talk to me? Why don't you tell me about your week? And remember, remember what Mason said at one point? He's like, Dad, why is it always on us? What about you? Are you dating anyone? How do you spend your time? How was your week? And the dad's initially a little taken aback by that, but it doesn't take very long before he says, I see your point. Mason's dad's a sinner. 
When sinners get called out on something, they say, yep, you're right. When a wicked person gets called out on something, they get defensive. They blame shift. Uh, they say, oh, that's rich. No, I'm not perfect, but neither are you. A wicked person get gaslights, a wicked person manipulates, a wicked person deceives. They refuse to take ownership for what they've done, the harm that they have caused. Uh, there's a verse in Jeremiah chapter 8 that gives us a pretty good picture, this uh, description of what wickedness biblically is all about. Again, it's on the screen. Let's read this one out loud together. No one repents of wickedness, saying, what have I done? So, Again, God says to Solomon back in 2 Chronicles 7, the dedication of the temple, a time is going to come when people are going to engage in wicked ways. That time is the time of Jeremiah. People are doing these wicked things, and Jeremiah's observation is, no one repents of wickedness saying, what have I done? No one takes responsibility, oh, look at the way I have hurt my son, look at the way I've hurt my daughter, look at the way I've, I've harmed my spouse or my neighbor or my friend or my co-worker. Uh, the Holy Spirit, part of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to convict us of our sin. And when you feel that conviction of sin, it's not really a pleasant feeling. It doesn't feel good to know that you are guilty, that you have messed up. You know what makes that not so good feeling go away? Confessing our sins. Wicked people, instead of confessing their sins, what makes that no good feeling of guilt go away is the hardening of your heart and an in, in insistence that I haven't done anything wrong. And you keep insisting that over and over and over, not acknowledging your sin, not owning your sin, not repenting of your sin, you get a calloused heart and you no longer feel guilt for the things that you've done. And that's what the Bible is saying is wicked behavior. Again, I... Let me try to be as clear as I can. Wickedness, biblically speaking, is not those people who do those horrible, atrocious, super awful things to a lot, a lot, a lot of people. Wickedness could be as simple as harming one person and refusing to acknowledge it, take responsibility for what you have done. When's the last time you found yourself kind of in dismay with your hands on your head just going, oh, what have I done? This might be a good time in the sermon to uh, make sure you understand the point of this message is not for you to leave today and start judging people. Sinner, sinner, wicked person, evil. That's not... Um, this movie Boyhood is about growth and maturity and how does it come about in our life? How do we change? How do we, how do we go from childhood to adulthood? And there's a similar reality the biblical writers point us to. The work that God is doing in our lives is maturing us from sort of spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity, spiritual adulthood. And God wants to do that process in us. And so the good news is, even though there are times in our life where, where we are wicked, we're not owning what we have done, God can change us. God can heal us. God can forgive us. God doesn't give up on us. And God does not give up on the wicked people in your life. Uh, some of you have wicked people that you're in relationship with. And you've been in relationship with them for years and years and years. 
and the same kinds of things just keep happening over and over and over. And every once in a while, you, you, you try to engage in the conversation, engage in a process of changing the unhealthy relational dynamics in your family, in, in the place where, where you work. And sometimes when it's a, a wicked system, when you engage in that conversation, you almost immediately wish you had not said anything. Because instead of saying, yep, I see your point, you're right, wicked people will turn it on you. And wicked people will say, boy, you're sure bitter. You, you sure can carry a grudge for a long time. They sometimes will use the Bible to make it possible for them to not confess their sin. What are you doing talk, pointing out the speck in my eye when you've got a log in your own eye? And so when you start engaging in conversations like that, it can become this crazy-making cycle where you feel absolutely powerless, you feel stuck in the relationship, nothing's ever going to change, it's hopeless, you're helpless. But for followers of Jesus, we're never hopeless and helpless. Jesus engages with wicked people all the time. And Jesus gives us a model for how to engage with wicked people in our life. Uh, Luke chapter 13 is an example of this. Luke chapter 13, Jesus goes to a synagogue on the Sabbath day. It's, you know, a, a time of worship. And he sees a woman who has been suffering for 18 years, and Jesus heals her. And when Jesus heals this woman on the Sabbath day, the religious establishment gets upset. He's broken their Sabbath law. How dare you, Jesus, do this kind of work on the Sabbath day? And Jesus' response in verse 15 is to look at the religious teacher, the, the people of faith, and Jesus says, you hypocrites. You hypocrites. Because Jesus cannot believe these religious teachers, the people who study the scripture and then teach the scripture. To the, he can't believe they do not see the ways in which they have elevated their religious rules, their religious laws, and now these, these rules and laws are more important than helping someone, healing someone, loving someone. And Jesus can't believe when he heals this woman who's been suffering for 18 years, these people don't put their hands on their heads and say, oh no, what have we done? What have we been doing all of these years, teaching people you can't do loving things on the Sabbath day? You hypocrites, each of you works on the Sabbath. Don't you untie your ox or your donkey from its stall on the Sabbath and lead it out for water. This dear woman, a daughter of Abraham, has been held in bondage by Satan for 18 years. Isn't it right that she be released even on the Sabbath? And I want us to read together how Luke concludes this story in verse 17. Again, it's on the screen. Read it with me. When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated. Don't you love Jesus? You got any opponents in your life? You want to sick Jesus on them? Humiliate them, Jesus. <laughs> Again, that, this is not the point of the message either, to go out and humiliate people. Why does Jesus humiliate the religious teachers, the, uh, the religious establishment of his day? Because he loves them. Because he loves them. He wants them to change. He wants them to see a new way and start going a new way. And Jesus understands sometimes, sometimes the only way that you can help a wicked person get to a place of repentance and change and transformation is to humiliate them first. Uh, remember Manasseh, the king who failed in 2 Chronicles 33? Uh, that's not the end of his story. His story keeps going. I'll, I'll start reading in verse 10 of 2 Chronicles 33. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they ignored his warnings. So the Lord sent the commanders of the Assyrian armies, and they took Manasseh prisoner. Now, I want you to listen to this. 
They put a ring through his nose. You know, not the kind of ring that a lot of people wear these days that's kind of cute and stylish. Like a ring through his nose like you would... We had, I grew up on a farm, and we had a bull, and the bull would like break fences and stuff, so they put a ring through his nose and attached a chain to it so he wouldn't be destroying everything. This is what they're doing to this king, Manasseh. They put a ring through his nose, bound him in bronze chains, and led him away to Babylon. You think he's humiliated when that happened? Absolutely. But while in deep distress, Manasseh sought the Lord his God and sincerely humbled himself before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed, the Lord listened to him and was moved by his request. So the Lord brought Manasseh back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom, and Manasseh finally realized that the Lord alone is God. God does not give up on wicked people. God doesn't give up on Manasseh. Jesus doesn't give up on the religious teachers of his day. He loves them. And God loves the world. And God loves you and me, even in those times when we are wicked and we are claiming we're not sinning. God loves us, and God does not give up on us. So, the information that I'm uh, trying to share with you today, I'm, it's coming from a lot of different sources. Of course, it's coming from Scripture. Uh, some of you maybe remember the book, The Road Less Traveled. M. Scott Peck wrote that decades ago. He also wrote a book called People of the Lie. And in that book, he talks about this idea, what is biblical wickedness? What's that all about? A guy named Dan Allender writes about this, this topic. There's a podcast that I listen to uh, called The Place We Find Ourselves. Adam Young is the host of that podcast. And he talks about this biblical distinction between sinners and wicked people and evil people. And part of what Adam Young says in the podcast, he says, Love always disrupts the status quo. Love always disrupts the status quo. And so because I love you, I want to try to disrupt you in Jesus' name a little bit today. What I am observing is we have an idolatry problem. And please note, I did not say they have an idolatry problem. Those people have an idolatry problem. I said, we have an idolatry problem. Uh, Idols in the Old Testament, they would actually carve these figures to represent the gods, these false gods that they were worshiping. We don't do that uh, in our day. But we still have idols. Maybe a more helpful way for us to understand an idol. An idol is anything in our lives that, uh, that we are dependent upon for our happiness, our joy, our peace, our prosperity, our safety, our protection. Uh, Pastor Mike, one of the lessons I've learned from him, he said, most of the things in our life are good things. And even the good things in our life can become problematic when they take the place of the best thing in our life. That passage we looked at from Psalm 33 earlier in the message says God sits on his throne in heaven. Sometimes we take things, earthly things in our life, And we attempt to put them on the throne that should be reserved for God. And we cross the line and these good things become uh, idols, false gods, that we are worshiping. So I want to ask you to consider the possibility that you have idols in your life and you're not confessing that you're worshiping false gods. And there's a part of you that is wicked. And God's not giving up on you. God's going to disrupt you because God loves you to help you try to see what these idols are. 
so that you can repent, so that you can turn to God, seek God's face, seek God's way. What are the idols in our life? What are some possibilities? Uh, Let's start with easy targets like youth sports. Youth sports are a really good thing, right? And there's a line that we cross. A line that we cross when all of our time is focused in on these activities. A line that we cross when we're living vicariously through our kids as they're doing it. When our happiness and joy and the peace in our household depends on do our kids make the right traveling team or not. Youth sports are a really good thing, a really good thing. And there's a line that sometimes we cross, and some of us have crossed it, where youth sports become an idol. What about, uh, I don't know, social media? I actually love social media. I learn a lot from social media. One of the things I love about social media is I follow all of you, and, and you guys are all over the place. Uh, so, so I learn things from people who are listening to people that I wouldn't know to listen to. Other people are listening to people who I wouldn't think to listen to, and so it keeps me out of an echo chamber. It helps me think critically, and of course, there's parts of social media that are just awful, terrible. We had a uh, couple of graduations in our family the the last two weeks. And so our daughter graduated from high school last weekend, and then Thursday and Friday we were at college orientation. And part of the college orientation was the dangers of social media and the ways that uh, people misuse it, the way people look for clout, your social media clout, to give you joy, give you happiness and meaning and value in your life. There's a line that we cross, and, and we worship the things that social media might give us. Um, wealth, money, there's a certain level of financial freedom that's healthy and good and necessary and God-given, and then there's a line that we can cross, isn't there? Where we start living for materialistic kinds of things, trusting them, depending on them to give us the life that we think we want, we deserve, instead of trusting God to give us the life that is abundant. Politics, some of us have made politics an idol. Uh, Some of us have become addicted to being right. When you're addicted to something, you're worshiping it. And I'm not talking about politics anymore. I'm talking about in our marriages, uh, in the places where you work. Some of us, we love to debate, we love to argue, as long as we always end up winning. Uh, Eli who's on staff here, Eli said to me once a couple years ago, when's the last time someone changed your mind? Let me just say that again. When's the last time someone changed your mind? I mean, if the work that God is doing in our lives is growing us from infancy to maturity, from childhood to adulthood, I mean, aren't there things that you believed when you were five that you don't believe anymore? Shouldn't there be some things in our life that maybe we, we believed were true five years ago and now... Someone has changed our... When's the last time the Word of God changed your mind? All right, everybody take a deep breath. Deep breath, deep breath. We all love each other here. Um, Some of us have made guns an idol. When you trust, when you become dependent, when you put your faith in something to protect you, and you completely trust that in place of trusting God, that's when you cross the line. Or to the complete neglect of trusting God, 
you've crossed the line and you've made a weapon an idol. Um, there's been a lot of talk about laws lately. Have you noticed that? Um, and please don't misunderstand me. I, I'm grateful that we live in a country uh, that believes in the rule of law, a, a country that uh, passes laws, examines existing laws. If we realize existing laws are maybe unjust, we will change those laws. We will amend those laws. I'm grateful that we live in a place where we have legislation. And it's possible for us, some of us have made laws and legislation an idol. We've crossed the line. And, and we've got to a place where we are absolutely convinced, we are dependent on putting our faith in the government to pass exactly the right laws so that everything will be just fine. You know, if we pass exactly the right laws around abortion, if we pass exactly the right laws around gun control, that's not going to make everything fine. We conveniently forget that there is a God who has the power to transform people and society. I don't know what the idol might be in your life. I don't know what lines you are crossing where you are, you're putting your faith and trust and you've become dependent on something other than God to give you the life that only God can give you. But whenever we get to that point, God says to us what God says to Solomon in 2 Chronicles 7. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land.